بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين نبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته اللهم انفعنا بما علمتنا وعلمنا ما ينفعنا وارزقنا علما تنفعنا به آمين رب العالمين الحمد لله ثم الحمد لله We've reached the next lesson of the tafsir of the short surahs of the Qur'an course and tonight we're moving on to Surah Al-Fil bi-idhnillahi ta'ala, the surah of the elephant. And to understand the surah and the context of the surah, we have to look at the historical event that took place um, with the Quraysh and with the Arabs and with uh, Abraha, Abraha al-Ashram and so forth. Because this is the backdrop to the surah and the reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not the reason why he revealed it, but this is what the surah was revealed about, right? Uh, about the story, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala basically tells us, do you not see what happened with these people? So to get a proper understanding of the power of the surah, we need to look at the, the story and the incident that took place. So we're going to go through, as it's mentioned by Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, in his tafsir. It's also mentioned in a bit more detail by Al-Qurtubi in his book, um, a tafsir as well. Um, but we go through Ibn Kathir's version, inshallah ta'ala, which is it's basically the same, uh, but a bit summarized compared to the one in Al-Qurtubi. Um, so firstly, we know about Najashi, the famous king of Abyssinia. We know about the famous Najashi, who eventually accepts Islam later on. Najashi was the king of Abyssinia. He placed two governors in Yemen, Ariyat and Abraha. Ariyat and Abraha. So what happened after some time, things happened, they had a battle there and things took place. And these two ended up in a duel with each other. And they made an agreement and said, look, let us fight it out. Whoever wins the fight, he takes over and he will be in charge of, of Yemen. He will be the official governor or the ruler of Yemen. Okay, so what happens is, Ariyat injures Najashi and one of Najashi's guards eventually steps in and kills Ariyat. So what happens is... Um, uh, sorry, Ariyat, he injures Abraha. Ariyat injures Abraha. He cuts his face open. And one of Abraha's uh, guards comes in, kills Ariyat, and this leaves Abraha in charge. Abraha then recovers, and he becomes the leader of, of Yemen. But this news then reaches Najashi that Ariyat has been killed, and this has happened because of Abraha, and he becomes extremely angry with Abraha and punishes and promises that he will come to Yemen walk over this ground in Yemen and cut off his forelock and punish him. So, An-Najashi explained and he wrote this to him and blamed him for what had happened and threatened him saying that he swore to tread on the soil of Yemen and cut off his forelock as we mentioned. So Abraha in, instead, he sends a messenger with gifts and some precious items and objects to Najashi to appease him and flatter him and a sack containing some soil from Yemen and a piece of hair from his, that he cut off from his forelock. And he says in his letter to Najashi, let the king walk upon the soil and thus fulfill his oath. And this is my forelock of hair that I send to you. So instead of coming out here and actually walking, here is some soil to walk on. Instead of cutting my forelock, here is some of my hair. And also here is some precious objects and gifts and so forth to flatter him. Right? To show Najashi, look, my allegiance is still to you. I'm still underneath you, you are still my king and so forth. What has happened has happened, but 
you know, let it slide and, and, and I'm still uh, uh, underneath your command and rule and so forth. So Najashi receives this and he becomes pleased with Abraha and he, he leaves Abraha due to this. But Abraha doesn't stop there. Abraha then writes to Najashi again and informs him that he will build a church for him. In Yemen, the like of which had never been built before. So he promises Najashi now, I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to build something in your name for you. The like that we've never seen a church. So he begins to build a huge church in Sana'a. Sana'a is in Yemen. Right? Still in Sana'a, we know Yemen. Uh, it's still there today, of course. One of the main cities in Yemen. He builds a tall and beautifully crafted and decorated on all sides this huge church, which was called Al-Qulays. Al-Qulays. Right? The Arabs called it Al-Qulays because of its great height. And because if one looked at it, you know, if you lift your head up to look, your cap would, would be uh, in danger of falling off as he tilted his head back. That's how high up it was. That's how, uh, you know, huge this building was. Al-Qulays that he built for Najashi. This was again to appease Najashi and to keep him pleased with, with him. This was what Abraha did. Abraha then takes this a step further and he says that he will make the Arabs turn their pilgrimage from away from the Kaaba and towards this magnificent church called Al-Qulays. So as they would go to Mecca and go, for, uh, go to the Kaaba for Hajj, he will make them come to Qulays and do Hajj there. This is now his threat to the Arabs. And he announced this in his kingdom, in Yemen. But of course it was rejected by the Arab tribes of Adnan and Qahtan, some of the more popular tribes. They stood up and, and of course rejected this. Right? But this was the this is what Abraha did. And of course, the Arabs were not just going to say no and reject this. They became angry and infuriated by this. And they took offense to this. And to them, you know, you were to change our pilgrimage to this church that you have built. This is the, the bait that Ibrahim built. Our forefathers, this is, this is a sacred place. As for your church, it's just a building. So what happened was, is one of these men from the Qurayshi tribes or one of the tribes... He journeys to this church in Yemen and he enters this church one night when nobody was around and he sat and he relieved himself in the church and then ran away. Other narrations mention that he took, he defecated and he, he took his feces and he took all of this najis, this filth, and he wiped it over the walls of the church and he, you know, he spread it all over. And some mentioned that he took corpses of dead animal, animals and he threw it inside. So one can only imagine the sight and the stench that must have come out of the church the next day. So this man, he did this during the night and he, he then runs away and he escapes. When the custodians of the church, you know, the caretakers or whoever it is, the people comes in the next day, they obviously come in and they find the church in the state. They immediately report it to, to Abraha. And they say that this was a Qurayshi person who came in and he did this out of anger because of the Kaaba. Because of what you said about the Kaaba and, you know, what you said about replacing the Kaaba with the church and so forth. This is why this man has come and what he did. So perhaps they saw him escape and so forth. And they said this is who, uh, or this is where this man had come from. Muqatil ibn Sulaiman, he mentions that a group of young men from the Quraysh entered the church 
and started a fire in it on, on an extremely windy day. So the church caught on fire and collapsed to the ground. So this is another incident that possibly took place. It, it wasn't just the issue of, you know, uh, filling it with filth and so forth. But somebody even, or a group of people even went and burnt the church down. Naturally, what does this, what does this cause? This causes Abraha to become extremely angry. All of his effort, all of his promises is now gone. He, what he promised Najashi has been destroyed. What he wanted to do in terms of diverting the Arabs away from the Kaaba has been destroyed. So he of course now decides on revenge. He prepares himself an army and he sets out with a huge army so that nobody can stop him from this mission of his. And with this army he took along a great powerful elephant that had a huge body the like of which had never been seen before. Now, these elephants were elephants of war. They're not normal, they, they were used in war. So they were big, powerful elephants. And this elephant especially was the biggest of them all, the likes of which have never been seen before. This elephant was called Mahmud. The name of this elephant was Mahmud. Mahmud means the praised one. And this elephant he received from Najashi, the king of Abyssinia, particularly for this expedition. So Najashi sends to him this huge elephant and obviously some more, either some troops and some more elephants. But part of what Najashi sent Abraha was this massive elephant called Mahmud, the, an elephant like the world has never seen before. And this was to go and complete your mission now that, that he's obviously decided on. That he's now going to go and take revenge on these Arabs. And instead, what's he going to do? He's going to destroy the Kaaba. Because of what they did to Qulais, the church, he's now going to destroy the Kaaba. It has also been said that he had eight other elephants with him. Some say 12, I've seen other ulama say six. The point is there was a number of these big elephants besides the huge one, which is Mahmud and Allah knows best. So the intention was to use this big elephant to demolish the Kaaba. They planned to do this by fastening the chains to the, by fastening chains to the pillars of the Kaaba and placing the other ends around the neck of the elephant. Then they would make the elephant pull on them in order to tear down the walls of the Kaaba all at one time. So we can imagine this, right? They tie, put some chains around the Kaaba, put it around this massive elephant and let him pull. And, by the, and then obviously uh, pulling the Kaaba and its, and its walls down. This, new, this news obviously reached the Arabs as well. So they knew what was to come. They knew what was being planned. Um... And they took it very seriously. They considered this an extremely grave matter. Because they knew some this powerful people with this powerful army is coming to destroy the Kaaba. And as much as these Arabs were mushrikeen, as much as they were in, in Jahiliyyah, right? they were in Jahiliyyah, but they respected the, the Kaaba greatly. They respected the Kaaba greatly. And they used to do Hajj and Tawaf. And they used to pray by the Kaaba. But... There was obviously lots of misguidance and so forth and a lack of tawheed and so forth, yes, but they still had the greatest respect for the, for the Kaaba. Um, one of the issues, for example, that comes to mind is when they rebuilt the Kaaba before prophethood had, 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 had happened, they rebuilt the Kaaba one day because the Kaaba had gone through some normal wear and tear and there was a flood and so forth. It was even burnt by a woman that tried to use some incense on the Kaaba. She ended up burning the Kaaba. So the Kaaba was on the verge of collapsing one day and 
they decided they need to rebuild. So what they did was is they all put in money to rebuild the Kaaba on condition it's pure wealth, not mixed with money that they got from a brothel or money that they got from zina, from uh, prostitution and prostitution homes or wealth that they got from riba. They made these conditions because they knew this is impure actions that they are busy with. But when it comes to their wealth that they are going to rebuild the Kaaba with, they will only use that which is pure. And we discussed this in our series, on our, in our seerah, Lessons, alhamdulillah, as well as this whole incident, which is slightly different with, or in a different way it's structured to the way we explained it in the seerah classes, alhamdulillah. So you can check that out for some more uh, detail and a different type of explanation on the, on the issue, alhamdulillah. Right, it's on the, the, the site, Cherish Pearls of Seerah, the cause there, um, Tayyib. So when the Arabs heard of this, they knew this is a serious matter, and they held it an obligation upon themselves to defend the sacred house of Allah, and repel whoever intended to plot against it. So for them, this was jihad. To them, the Arabs said, this is jihad. We are now going to defend the Kaaba no matter what happens. This is now our jihad. So a noble man from the people of Yemen, and one of their greatest chiefs set out to face him. His name was Dhu Nafar. His name was Dhu Nafar. So remember this name. His name was Dhu Nafar. One of the noblemen of Yemen and one of the chiefs of Yemen. He sets out to face who? Abraha and his army. His name was Dhu Nafar. He called his people and whoever would respond to his call among the Arabs to go to war against Abraha and fight in defense of the sacred house. This was their jihad. So he called the people to stop Abraha's plan to demolish and tear down the Kaaba. So the people responded to him and they entered into battle with Abraha, but he defeated them. Long and short of it, Abraha was way too powerful. His power, his army, his elephants and so forth was way too powerful. He overpowers these people from Yemen, the armies of the Nafar, and he overpowers them. Ibn Kathir says this was due to Allah's will and his intent. To honor and venerate the Kaaba. Subhanallah. So if Allah wanted, He could have allowed this Dhu Nafar and his people to, to conquer them. And they would have been honored for that, perhaps. But Allah wanted this to happen. Allah wanted this whole incident to take place out of His hikmah, out of His qadr, out of to show that when you get there, we are still going to protect the Kaaba, to venerate and, and to increase the honor of the Kaaba and so forth. So Dhu Nafar is captured and taken along with the army of Abraha. It is said that Dhu Nafar actually was about to be killed, but he stands up and says, don't kill me, because um, I will be with you as a prisoner, for example, and perhaps in the future, I will be of benefit to you. I can be of, of benefit to you because of my status. And so because of this, Abraha keeps him alive and takes him um, as a prisoner. So the army now continues on its way, right? They continue on their way, marching towards Mecca. And they come to a land of, to the land of Khath'am, Khath'am, where they are confronted by Nufail ibn Habib al-Khath'ami. Nufail, along with his people, the Shahran and Nahis tribes. Two tribes are found in Khath'am, Shahran and Nahis. Shahran and Nahis, these are the two tribes that are found in the place called Khath'am. Right? So here they are con the army of Abraha is confronted by these people who is led by Nufail ibn Habib al-Khath'ami. Again, they fight them. 
these, these are the Arabs. So they, they are now fighting who? Abraha. What happens? Again, Abraha defeats them and they capture Nufail. Again, he, they were going to kill Nufail. But Nufail again says, look, keep me alive. I may be of benefit. And eventually he is used as a guide to show Abraha the way to Hijaz. So he's experienced. He's an Arab. He knows how to get to Mecca. Khalas, I'll stay alive and I'll show you the way to Hijaz. When they approached Ta'if, so Ta'if is just outside of Mecca, not too far from Mecca, but an hour's drive from Mecca. They get to Ta'if, and what are they faced with? What are they faced with in Ta'if? These people, the people of Thaqif, they go out to Abraha before Abraha enters Ta'if, and immediately they go out and they submit to him. They are fearful of him, of him and their place of worship, which they called Allat. We know Allat was one of the idols that they used to worship. They had a place of worship called Allat. So they come out, these idol worshippers, and they go to Abraha and say, Look, we hear and we obey, we'll do whatever you need. But don't harm us, don't destroy us. We have no interest in what you are going to do. We are not going to stop you or anything. And so Abraha responded with kindness to them. And they sent a man named Abu Rigal, Abu Rigal, with him as a guide, another guide. When they reached a place known as Al-Mughammas, which is near Mecca, they settled there. Then he sent his troops on a foray to capture the camels and other grazing animals of the Meccans, which they did. So Abu Rigal and others, they go with the troops of Abraha. They enter Mecca and they start to steal and capture all of the flock and the cattle and the grazing animals that they had and they collected them. 200 camels of, of, that, of, the, of the animals that were stolen and taken belonged to Abdul Muttalib. So we know who's Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Abdul Muttalib, he had lots, they were wealthy and he was of the elite of the Quraysh and he had at least 200 camels that had been stolen from him from amongst the rest that were stolen. The leader of this expedition was a name, a man by the name of Al-Aswad ibn Mafsud, Al-Aswad. Abraha then sends an emissary named Hanatah Al-Himyari to enter Mecca, commanding him to bring him the head of the Quraysh and to inform him that the king will not fight the people of Mecca unless they try to prevent him from the destruction of the Kaaba. So he sends a messenger. The messenger comes in and he speaks to the leaders of the Quraysh. And he's there. Firstly, look, I'm here to say anybody stops us who tries to prevent us, we'll kill. If you leave us, we'll leave you alone. And I came to get the head of the people of, of your leader of the Quraysh. When he gets there, he is sent to who? Abdul Muttalib. Again, the grandfather of Rasulullah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he relays the message of Abraha. Abdul Muttalib then says, By Allah, we have no wish to fight him. We have no intention to fight Abraha. Nor are we in any position to do so. So Abdul Muttalib knew, we are in no position, meaning we don't have the force. We don't have the army. We don't have the weaponry to fight Abraha and his army. So we do not wish to fight him, nor do we have, no, are we able or capable of doing so? This is the sacred house of Allah. And the house of his Khalil Ibrahim, 
And if he, meaning Allah, wishes to prevent Abraham from destroying this house, it is his house and it is his sacred place to do so. It's his house and his haram. He can do so if he wants to protect it, he can protect it. If he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to. It's Allah's place after all. But we are in no position to do anything. This was the reasoning of Abdul Muttalib. And he said, if he lets him approach it, by Allah we have no means to defend it from him. If Allah allows Abraha to approach the haram, to approach uh, the Kaaba, we have no way to defend it in any case. They were simple people at the time. They didn't have... How are they going to stop a huge elephant? Or elephants? And the army that he's come with? And the weaponry that they've come with? He knew. The reality is we cannot fight you. We are not by the means to fight you. So we leave it in the hand of Allah. That's basically what Abdul Muttalib said. So Hanata says, Look, come with me to Abraha. So it's not to say... So remember, they are not standing up against Abraha. Right? So hence, there's no reason to kill these people. Right? So Hanata then says, Khalas, if that's the case, come with me and you speak to Abraha. And so Abdul Muttalib goes with him. When Abraha sees Abdul Muttalib, he is impressed by him. Meaning, Abdul Muttalib was an extremely handsome man and good-looking man. He was big, he was well-built, and he was very, very handsome and good-looking. So when Abraha sees him, Abraha is already impressed and he, he, uh, Abdul Muttalib has left an impression on him. Abdul Muttalib has had an effect on him. So Abraha basically comes and he sits with him on a carpet and he's, you know, he, he feels something about this man. There is something that this man is, is having as an effect on him. And so remember, Abraha is actually from Abyssinia and so forth. He's not an Arab. He was put in charge of Yemen, yes, but he's not actually an Arab. So he speaks in his language to translators. Who speaks to? Abdul Muttalib. And he says to Abdul Muttalib, what do you need? Abdul Muttalib says to the translator, I want this king to return my camels which he has taken from me, which are 200 in number. Subhanallah. We came here to kill you. We came here to destroy your Kaaba. Ask him what he wants. And what does he want? I want my 200 camels back that you took from me. This is the response of Abdul Muttalib. Abraha then tells the translator to tell him, I was impressed by you. You left an impression on me. You, you really had an effect on me. I came down to sit with you because I was so overtaken when I saw you. With, I was in awe of you. But after you've spoken to me, I want nothing to do with you. As if to say you're actually a silly person. You are asking me about 200 camels, which I've taken from you, but you leave the matter of your house or of the house, which is the foundation of your religion and the religion of your fathers, which I have come to destroy and you have nothing to say about it. So Abraha thought, you may look like this, but based on what he's saying, this, is a, this man is, is, is not a man of intellect, not a man who gives important of priority, basically. He's not worried about the Kaaba, which is the basis of his deen, but he's worried about his camels. So Abraha was, was now uh, not interested in this individual and speaking to him anymore. He's basically take him away. Abdul Muttalib then says, Indeed, I am the lord of camels. And this is what I can control. These are my camels. I'm in charge of my camels. I can control my camels. I am the lord of camels. And of these camels. 
As for the Kaaba, as for that house, it has its own Lord which will defend it. Subhanallah. So Abdul Muttalib, he knew, as we said previously, that they could not defend the house against this huge army. But he's making it clear, look, those are my camels. All I want from you is my camels. As for the Kaaba, we leave it to its own owner. It has its own owner, its own Rabb. And that Rabb will take care of it. This was why he, this was actually his reasoning. So Abraha says, I cannot be prevented from destroying it. As if to say, who's going to stop me? What can possibly stop me? You people have nothing to stop me and my huge army. I cannot be prevented from destroying it. So don't speak to me about this Lord of the Kaaba that can... You know, this was his response. So Abdul Muttalib said, then do so. If you, that's what you think, if that's what you, that you genuinely believe, then do so. Ibn Kathir then says, it is said that a number of the chiefs of the Arabs accompanied Abdul Muttalib and offered Abraha a third of the wealth of the tribe of Tihama if he withdrew from the house, but he refused and returned Abdul Muttalib's camels to him. So some said that there was a lot of the chiefs were there. They offered a third of the wealth of the whole tribe, Tihama, as if to say, look, take this wealth. It's a lot of wealth and just leave the Kaaba and go. But he refused this and he actually gave Abdul Muttalib's camels back to him. So this also shows the, the, the intellect of Abdul Muttalib. How he got his, his items back. And he knew, you know, fighting the, the Kaaba is actually out of their hands. They're going to leave it to Allah. They're going to leave it to Allah because there is no way they could possibly fight uh, an army like this. And remember, they did not have Iman. It was not like in the times of, of, of the battles of the Prophet ﷺ where they would stand up to a huge... These people didn't have Iman, you know. So for them, yes, they had a, a certain level of belief in Allah, in that they knew Allah existed, in His Rububiyyah and so forth, that they believed He would take care of the Kaaba, and they hoped that He would, but they were not prepared to just die for, you know, as if to say in vain, as if to say in vain, but they knew they could not confront this army. So Abdul Muttalib then returns to the people of Makkah, and tells them to leave Makkah, and to seek some shelter on the top of the mountains, fearful of the excesses which, might be committed by the army against him. This is clear. He knew. If this, this army is going to come in, there's no point we stand around. There's no point that we are here. We might as well stand on top of the mountains and, and wait and see what happens because if we stay here, they might just get out of hand and start to kill everybody and destroy everything. So let them just do their thing. Let us go to the mountaintops and wait and see what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has in store for them. So he took hold of the metal ring of the door of the Kaaba and along with a number of the Quraysh he called upon Allah to give them victory over Abraha and his army. So they invoked Allah. These were idol worshippers but they invoked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knowing that this is the house of Allah. Abdul Muttalib then said while hanging onto the ring of the Kaaba's door there is no matter more important to any man right now than the defense of his livestock and property. So oh my lord defend your property. Defend your property. Their cross and their cunning will not be victorious over your cunning by the time morning comes. So we are going to focus on what we can focus on. We'll protect our, our people and our livestock and so forth. Ya Allah, you defend your property, which is the Kaaba. So they left it in the hand of Allah and they left. According to Ibn Ishaq, Abdul Muttalib let go of the metal ring of the door of the Kaaba and they left Mecca and ascended to the mountaintops. Muqatil ibn Sulaiman mentioned that they left 100 animals or camels tied near the Kaaba. 
hoping that some of the army would take some of them without a right to do so, meaning they would steal in front of the Kaaba and thus bring about the vengeance of Allah upon themselves. Subhanallah. So according to this narration that Muqatil mentions is the Quraysh left animals, about a hundred animals, tied about near the Kaaba's area. So thinking, look, let them come in, let them steal these camels. They have no right to them, so let them steal in the Haram, in the Kaaba, next to the Kaaba. This will definitely bring the wrath of Allah upon them, and Allah will punish them for this. So this was even a, a tactic that they tried, you know, to get these people punished. When morning came, Abraha prepares to enter the sacred city of Makkah. He prepares the elephant named Mahmud, and he mobilizes his army, and they turn the elephant towards the Kaaba. They're ready to march. They, everything's ready, the army's ready, turn the elephant and let's go. At that moment, Nufail bin Habib approaches it and he stands next to it, taking it by its ear and he says, Kneel, Mahmoud, kneel, Mahmoud. Then turn around and return directly to where you came from, for verily you are in the sacred city of Allah. Who is Nufail? Nufail was from Khath'am, the city. Nufail was from Khath'am. And he was the one who was captured. They never killed him and used as a guide until they reached Ta'if, where the people of Ta'if gave them another guide. This is the same Nufail. So Nufail is now with them. So as they're about to walk, Nufail goes to Mahmoud and he pulls him by his ear and says, Kneel, Mahmoud. Sit down, kneel. Turn around and go back to where you came from, for you are now in the sacred city of Allah. And what happens? He leaves Mahmoud's ear and he hastens to the mountain. He escapes basically. He runs away from them. So he goes to sit in some mountaintop area or some hilltop area away from the rest of the, the rest of Abraha's army. What then happened is Mahmoud the elephant kneeled. And Abraha's men beat this elephant, you know, the way they would hit it to try to get it to stand up. And they tried to make it stand up, but the elephant refused. They beat it on its head with axes and used hooked staffs to pull it out of its resistance and make it stand, but Mahmoud refused. So they turned him in the direction of Yemen. This is where he came from. And Mahmoud stands up and he walks. And then they turned him in the direction of Sham. And he stands up and he walks. They turned him to the east and he did the same thing. Then they turned him back to Makkah. So now they got him moving. Okay, he walked to Yemen, he's walking. Turned him to Sham, he's walking. Turned him to the east, he's walking. Right, so back to the Kaaba, facing the direction of Makkah and the Kaaba. And what happens? Mahmoud sits down and he kneels down once again. And this is the state of the army. So they were immobilized. And as they're in the state where they're now immobilized, not knowing what to do because the, everything was, this is their main weapon. So they're not going to just walk without their main weapon. And as they are struggling with Mahmoud, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends the birds from the sea, like swallows and herons, which are two different types of birds. One is a small one, one is one with a long beak and so forth. And we're going to get to the description of the birds according to the Mufassirin later on. Each bird carried three stones. The size of chickpeas and lentils, which is very small, very small, right? One in, in each claw and one in its beak. Each, each person that was hit by these stones was destroyed. 
edge, whoever was struck by a stone. So Allah sends these birds with these stones. And the birds start throwing these stones down. Any person who was hit by the stone was killed and destroyed. Although not every person was hit. So as this starts to happen, the flock of birds come with stones start raining down on them. They flee in their panic along the roads. And who are they looking for? Where's Nufail? Nufail is supposed to be the guide. Where is Nufail? Right? Looking for Nufail. Asking, looking, and they're running in panic, fleeing to this valley and to this road and to this mountaintop and looking for Nufail, hoping that he's going to direct them to the path back home. Remember when we say we turn the elephant to Hijaz, they turn, sorry, they turn the elephant to Yemen, it doesn't mean they can just march to Yemen, they have to still follow the route, which may be to this alleyway and this road and through that valley and eventually you get to the road of Yemen. But they didn't know the roads, that's why they needed a guide. There were no signboards, there were no, those days you had to travel with a guide. Nufail, however, was at the top of the mountain with the Quraysh and the Arabs of the Hijaz observing the wrath which Allah had caused to descend on the people of the elephant. So Nufail had run away as we sit to the mountain tops and he joined the Quraysh and the, and, the, and the Arabs and he watched. And they saw how Allah sent his wrath and his punishment upon them. Nufail then began to say, where will they flee when the one true God is the pursuer? Allah is chasing after them. Where are you going to hide? For Al-Ashram is defeated and not the victor. Al-Ashram is obviously Abraha. Abraha Al-Ashram is his name. So he said, where are they going to flee? When it is Allah, the only true God, who is the pursuer. Allah is the Talib. He is the one who is seeking them out. For Al-Ashram, meaning Abraha, is defeated and not the victor. Ata ibn Yasar and others have said that all of them were not struck by the torment at this hour of retribution. Rather, some of them were destroyed immediately while others were gradually broken down limb by limb trying to escape. So some of them were destroyed immediately. The stone hit them and they died. Others were destroyed slowly. They suffered. They were, they were really as in tortured. Their limbs fell off finger by finger, arm by arm. Slowly they were broken down like this by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And of course, Abraha was of those who was broken down limb by limb until he eventually died in the land of, of Khath'am. Ibn Ishaq said that they left Mecca being struck down and destroyed along every path and at every water spring. So as they are fleeing, they are being struck down constantly. They find a way here, then they get struck down. And this one, and, and from every path and angle, they are being rained down upon by these birds which came from the ocean area. And obviously from the heavens, they are now being thrown. Abraha's body was afflicted by the pestilence of the stones and his army carried him away with them. As he was falling apart, piece by piece, his body was withering away, falling apart piece by piece, until they arrived back in Sana'a, all the way to Yemen. So imagine the long journey and how he is suffering. And so as they left, obviously the stones now had stopped, but as he's on his journey back home, he is suffering and suffering and suffering, and his body is falling apart, literally falling apart. Until he gets to his hometown in Sana'a. When he gets to Sana'a in Yemen, he is but like the baby chick of a bird. That's what's left of him. That's what's left. This is how the, it's described. This is what is left of him. <laughs> and 
he did not die until his heart fell out of his chest. Subhanallah, this was the punishment that was given to who? To Abraham. Ibn Ishaq, rahimahullah, he said that when Allah sent Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa with the prophethood, among the things that he used to recount to the Quraysh as blessings that Allah had favored them with of his bounties was his defending them from the attacks of the Abyssinians. Due to this, the Quraysh were allowed to remain safely in Mecca for a period of time. So we'll touch on this point later on of how uh, the Prophet could use this as a, as a means to get to the Quraysh, to show them and to remind them of how Allah basically blessed them by him defending them from the attack of the Abyssinians, uh, the attack of Abraha and Mahmud the elephant and so forth. So due to this, this was what happened. This is the incident, right? They were allowed to remain safely in Mecca. These Arabs and the Quraysh and so forth, they could now stay in Mecca. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Alam now we know the incident. This was the incident which is summarized, yes, but it's in enough detail for us to know exactly what happened. Why did Najashi uh, send Abraha? Why did Abraha come and to, to, to destroy the Kaaba? What, what was the reason? Because of what happened to Qulais, the church that he built. And why did they destroy Qulais and, and uh, you know, do what they did in Qulais? Because of what Abraha said about the Kaaba. So this is how, what, how things started. This is what started the whole thing. And eventually he comes and he attacks with his elephant. So they were known as the army of the elephant. Ashab al-Fil. The people or the army of the elephant. So they came to destroy the Kaaba. They destroyed tribes along the way in Khath'am. And others in Yemen. Nufail was captured. Dhu Nafar was captured. The, the noblemen. The noblemen from Yemen. And others were destroyed. They came to Ta'if, they submitted to them, and eventually they came to Makkah. The threats were given, the discussion happened between um, Abdul Muttalib and, and Abraha, and that was also discussed in a bit more detail in the Seerah series, Alhamdulillah. So refer back to that for more detail, bi'idhnillahi ta'ala. However, coming back, this is now what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about when he says, Alam tara kayfa fa'ala rabbuka bi'ashabi al-feel. Have you not seen, O Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, how your Lord dealt with the army of the elephant. How your Lord dealt with the army of the elephant. Firstly, some ulama, they said, this is an address to the Prophet because Allah said, Alam tara, do you not see? Have you not seen? However, other scholars say, it refers in a general sense to him and the ummah. Or firstly to him and then the ummah. Difference of opinion, both views are correct. Right? It refers to the Prophet but also to all, all who follows him. Have all of you not seen how Allah dealt with the army of the elephant? And as we said, this was a reminder for those who witnessed it. Meaning, the Qurayshis who witnessed this happening, right? Who were there, whether they were young or old. And even those who came after them who did not witness it, they heard the stories. Because this year was known as the year of the elephant. Right, this became known as the year of the elephant. So the Qurayshis, or the Arabs should we say, they didn't have a calendar like we have today. So they would name the year after something, that, uh, some major event, for example. So the biggest event of that year was undoubtedly the happening of the elephant. And the army of the elephant. The battle that took place with this army. So it was known as the year of the elephant. It was known as the the year of the elephant. Amul fil. 
Amul Fil. So it was a very popular event. Not just because of that it was a big deal, but also because it was a great victory for them. And a great honor for them, the Qurayshis and the Arabs, that Allah had defended them in this way and defeated this huge army of the Abyssinians. So for them, this was a, a, a proud moment for the Arabs, something that they really took pride in. So Amul Fil was a great event for them and a, a veneration for them and an honor for them. So Amul Fil was known as the year of the elephant. It was also within this year that the Prophet ﷺ was born. So anybody who was alive before that event or during that event and who was born after that event would have known about this event. Because people would always be talking about it. So those who witnessed it would talk about it and tell the others, the youngsters who were growing up, this is what happened in Amul Fil. This is how Allah defended us. This is how Allah blessed us. How Allah venerated the Arabs and so forth. So everybody knew about Amul Fil. What happened with, the, with this incident. So when these ayat were revealed, this is only then revealed later on after prophethood. So the Prophet ﷺ was born in the year of the elephant. 40 years later he gets prophethood. And some time later there are these ayat only revealed. So it's some time later that he only recites these ayat. And when he recites these ayat, it's a reminder for the Quraysh. Look how Allah blessed you. These are the words of Allah. Look how Allah, these bounties that He bestowed upon you. Here it is coming back and Allah is using this to remind them of His bounties upon them. So this is what we meant as a, this is a reminder for those who witnessed it and also for those who heard about it. Tayyib. So we said this was the year of the elephant, which was a major event wherein Rasulullah was born within this year. Right? And this was like a sign of something good to come. You know, he was born in this year and this was a foreground for his prophethood. That this was a year that something, not just was this the year that, they, that, that Allah honored and protected his haram, but also the year that he sent his, his Rasul, uh, at least when he was born. Allah then says, Alam yaj'al fi Did he not frustrate their scheme, their plans, their plots, their ploys, which was to destroy the Kaaba? Was their main goal? Did Allah not just frustrate it, meaning? Did he not destroy it? Did he not put a stop to it? And the plot was also to kill those who refused to surrender the Kaaba. Anybody prepared to defend it, like the other tribes who did jihad, it was to kill them all. And when he got to Mecca, that was the plan. Send me the head of the chief of the Quraysh, and if anybody stands in our way and tries to defend the Kaaba or to prevent us from the Kaaba, we're killing him as well. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed the entire plot and scheme. Do we not see this? Do we not realize this is what Allah is telling us? وَأَرْسَلَ عَلَيْهِمْ طَيْرًا أَبَابِيلٍ وَأَرْسَلَ عَلَيْهِمْ طَيْرًا أَبَابِيلٍ For he sent against them flocks of birds. Flocks of birds. Now, firstly, there's a lot of difference of opinion, or at least a lot of different details that are given about these birds. Sa'id ibn Jubair, he says, birds that came from the sky that was never seen before nor after that. These birds had never been seen before. They were not like normal birds that, that, that they knew of. When they saw these birds, they were shocked to see them. They were not birds that had been seen before and they never saw the likes of those birds again. It was something unique. Ikrima, rahimahullah, he said, they were green birds that came out of the sea and had heads like the heads of predatory animals. 
salam. So they came from the ocean. They came out of the ocean and they were green. And they had heads like the heads of predatory animals. A predator, which is like a lion or a, 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 a tiger or a cheetah or something along those lines. This is something that, that they must they were unique. They were not normal birds that, that they've seen before, as Sa'id ibn Jubayr said. Abdullah ibn Abbas, the famous companion, anhumah, he said, they had snouts like the beaks of birds and paws like the paws of dogs. So this is something that we in reality cannot even imagine. Ubayr ibn Umayr, he said, when Allah wanted to destroy the people of the elephant, he sent birds upon them that came from the sea. The sea swallows. Each of the birds was carrying three small stones. Two stones with its feet or claws and one stone in its beak. They came until they gathered in rows over their heads. Then they gave a loud cry and threw what was in their claws and beaks. So this is how they came. They came until they gathered in rows over the heads of the, of, of the armies. And then they gave a cry. And that, then they threw what was in their claws and in their beaks. Thus no stone fell upon the head of any man except that it came out of his behind. If it hit his head, it came out of his behind. Meaning it went straight through him. Right through him. And it did not fall on any part of his body except that it came out from the opposite side. If it hit him from this side, it came out that side. If it hit him in front, it came out at the back. It penetrated and it went right through. Hence we said if it hit him, it, it killed them. It destroyed them. And if it hit this limb, it would come at the bottom, arm off. If it hit this side or hit his leg, yeah, it would hit the bottom and his whole leg would come off. Limb by limb, it would knock them off. Then Allah sent a severe wind that struck the stones and increased them in force. Thus they were all destroyed. Subhanallah. This is what it is narrated. And these narrations are all mentioned in Tafsir ibn Kathir. Um, rahimahullah. So this is the nature of these birds that were sent. They were not normal birds. They are not ordinary birds. They came from the seas. They were green. They had beaks like this. They had paws like dogs. They had faces and heads like predatory animals. And this was the type of... Uh, uh, the stones may have been tiny. But the force that they came with and, they, and that they hit with was like no other. And then Allah sent winds according to this narration as well. As for the word ababil, Allah says, Tayran ababil, birds in ababil. What is ababil? Some, we translated it earlier as flocks of birds, right? And again, difference of opinion. Some say groups, which could be flocks, groups or flocks of birds. Some say that they were following after each other. So as one group came, another group came, it was consecutive. Others say ababil means many. There were just a huge amount. Right? Various successive groups, another opinion. Others say different birds, meaning some came from here, some came from there. They came upon them from everywhere. So they came differently, yani, all from, from all over. From this angle, that ever, that, that angle, from the top, the, from all over, they came. And others say it means in divisions, just like camels march in divisions in their herds, right? <laughs> this is how others um, basically explain what ababil means. All of these meanings are possible and, and could be all be correct. Allah Azza wa knows best. Then Allah said, Tarmihim bihijaratim min sijil. That um, these birds that came in flocks pelted them with stones of baked clay, of baked clay. 
Al-Qurtubi mentions in his tafsir, these stones of clay that was baked in the fire of Jahannam. They were not normal clay. They were clay that was built in the fire of Jahannam, which had the name of its people written on them. So these stones were baked in Jahannam. This clay was baked in Jahannam, not in a normal place where clay is baked. In the fires of Jahannam, which is 70 times more severe. And they also had the names of its people on them. This is what Al-Qurtubi mentioned. As Allah said, لِنُرْسِلَ عَلَيْهِمْ حِجَارَةً مِنْ طِينَ To send upon them stones of baked clay. Right? مُسَّوَّمَةً عِنْدَ رَبِّكَ لِلْمُسْرِفِينَ The next ayah actually says, this is in Surah Dhariyat, I forgot to put the reference. Surah Dhariyat, I believe it's ayah 33 if I remember correctly. Surah Dhariyat, ayah number 33. Allah then says the next ayah, it had the names on it from your Lord, للمسرفين, for the transgressors or for the criminals and so forth. فَجَعَلَهُمْ كَعَصْفٍ مَأْكُولٍ The final ayah Allah says, leaving them like chewed up straw. Leaving them like chewed up straw, meaning this is the effect that these stones, these baked clay stones from Jahannam had upon them. It left them like chewed up straw. What's meant by the Sa'id ibn Jubayr? He said, this means straw and he said this means the leaves of wheat. He also said al-asf or asf ka'asfin means straw. Um, some said it means the fodder that is cut for animals. Something along those lines. Al-Hasna al-Basi said this. And Ibn Abbas said al-asf is the shell of the grain just like the covering of wheat. Right? You can try to picture the shell of the grain just like the covering of wheat. This is how they were left. That was cool. It was chewed up. This type of straw that was chewed Right? It's, it's, it's ground up, it's weakened. Uh, Ibn Zayd said, Al-Asf are the leaves of vegetation and produce. When the cattle eat it, they defecate it out and it becomes dung. Right? This is, again, some of the opinions that is mentioned on this ayah. This is how they ended up. Broken down, completely destroyed is basically what's meant. Ibn Kathir, he explains and he says, the meaning of this is that Allah destroyed them, annihilated them, and repelled them in their plan and their anger. They completely were destroyed in, and utterly. They did not achieve any good. Nothing. What they set out to achieve, they did nothing. They achieved nothing. He made a mass destruction of them and not one of them returned to their land to relate what happened except that he was wounded. Most of them had died. Those who returned, returned in a bad state. This is just like what happened to their king Abraha. For indeed, he was split open, exposing his heart when he reached the land of Sana'a. He informed the people of what happened to them and then he died. So he came back like a, like a chick of a baby crow, that's what we said. And when he got there, his heart had fallen out of his chest and he died. This is how, how he, this is how he basically lived to the end, you know, subhanAllah. So that's the tafsir of that surah to end off on a hadith. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Indeed, Allah restrained the elephant from Makkah. In, this is now much later on, he says. And this is actually after they conquered Makkah, this hadith says. Allah restrained the elephant from Makkah all those years back and he has given his messenger and the believers authority over it. So after they conquered Makkah, after Fatu Makkah, he said this, that the messenger and the believers have been given authority over Makkah. And indeed its sacredness has returned just as it was returned uh, yesterday. So let those who are present inform those who are absent. Yani to say Alhamdulillah the sacredness is back for Makkah as it was, it used to be a place of worship, a place of tawheed, free from shirk, free from all types of misguidance and, and haram and, and, and fawahish and so forth. Um, Allah has now 
given this honor back to the believers and he's honored and given the sacredness back to the city of Makkah as it used to be. But he specifically mentioned how Allah initially restrained the elephant from, from Makkah. And here we see from the surah how Allah punished the oppressors and how he punished those who had an evil intent towards his Kaaba. And this shows how Allah himself venerates the Kaaba and how he himself prote- protected the Kaaba and his haram. Right? And this also shows us the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The power of Allah azza wa jal. Subhanallah. Um, before prophethood, Allah protected his Kaaba from the mighty army and elephant. This was the full ground for the prophethood of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So this happened before prophethood. And this was a foreground of what something great was to come. And that was the coming of uh, the prophetism in his birth and then the coming eventually sometime later of his prophethood. However, this was now before prophethood this happened. The incident of the elephant. Towards the end of time, the Kaaba will be broken down. The Prophet ﷺ said in Hadith in Bukhari, as if I were looking at him, a black person with thin legs plucking the stones of the Kaaba one after another. This is what he foresaw going to happen. In another hadith, also in Bukhari, he mentioned an Abyssinian or Ethiopian man, a man from Habasha, right? Um, that will be doing this. And on this point, Ibn Uthaymin and others, they said, on this hadith, they said, this is why the people of Makkah especially should be kept far away from sin or should keep themselves away from sin and away from transgression and disbelief and ilhad and all types of deviation and, and zulm and transgression and so forth. Because it was when the, the Kaaba is respected, Allah will, will give its protection. And when it's belittled, this is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, His punishment will come. And this is what will happen at the end of time. It's because of the sins and the belittlement of the Kaaba, how the people are living around the Kaaba without respect, without veneration, through all of sin and so forth. This will eventually happen. Somebody will come and he will pluck this, the stones of the Kaaba one by one until it falls down. Subhanallah. So this is why Allah has protected it, yes, but this might happen, or this is, seems to be what's going to be happening in the future, as the Prophet ﷺ has mentioned in this, in this hadith, this is what's going to happen in the future, as he has mentioned in this hadith, and Ibn Uthaymi says it's due to what's going to happen of the sins of people, and especially those people in Makkah, uh, when this happens. Understand? Wallahu a'lam. So, to end off, this surah truly shows us the power of Allah. They came with a huge, mighty army, with elephants, with all types of weaponry and so forth, to people who had nothing to protect themselves with. These people went to the top of the mountain and said, this is the house of Allah, we leave it in the hands of Allah. And Abraham said, nothing can stop me. Nothing, I'm the superpower in today's world. I've got the best army, I've got the biggest elephants, I've got the best artillery and so forth. So nothing can defeat me. This is what he said to Abdul Muttalib. Nothing can stop me from destroying it. Abdul Muttalib said, then do what, show us and do what you have to do. But the armies of Allah and the forces of Allah are plenty. And none knows them but He. None sees them but He. Allah has many soldiers. Allah has forces and armies that we do not know of. That He can use at any time that He wants. And as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا يَعْلَمُ جُنُودَ رَبِّكَ إِلَّا هُ And none knows the armies of your Lord except He. The forces of your Lord except He. Nobody knows the true armies of Allah except Him. 
Allah uses various, could be animals, could be in, uh, insects, it could be birds as we saw in this, in this narration, in this incident. It could be people, it could be angels, it could be jinn. Allah can use any of his creation. It could be the wind. It could be anything that Allah wants to use as an, as an army on his behalf to do the work that he wants to be done. And this is why as believers we put our trust in Allah. We put our trust in Allah. We worship Allah alone. We stay far away from the major sins like shirk and so forth and nifaq. And we honor ourselves by this. We honor ourselves. We give ourselves izzah by obeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And staying away from the shaitan and his, his teachings and his footsteps. And staying away from the major sins, especially that of kufr and shirk and worshipping other than Allah because that is the ultimate humiliation. And we stay away from bid'ah and we only follow the sunnah. And this is how we honor ourselves. And when we honor ourselves, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will honor us. So this is how we bring the honor back to the ummah. We take them back to the teachings of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. At this point in time, the ummah is very much standing up in defense of the honor of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa which is excellent. But we also need to go back to his teachings. Go back to the basics in our aqeedah. The aqeedah of the sahaba and the, and the Prophet sallam. And to stick to those teachings. And to worship Allah the way they worshipped him. Without innovating into the deen of Allah. And to worship him purely for the sake of Allah. With sincerity, with ikhlas. And with complete tawheed. Without worshipping anything besides him. This is where we will find our honor. This is where we will find our victory. And this is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will come to our defense and our aid. And he will honor us as an ummah and take us out of this weakness that we are in. This zulm that we are in. This oppression that we are in. The reality is we've put ourselves in this because of our state. Because of the weakness of the ummah. Because of, of where we've, we've, we've fallen to in terms of our lack of knowledge. And in terms of our, our, our lack of the foundations of the deen. The fundamentals of the deen in terms of aqidah and so forth. And this is the problem within the ummah today. The main problem... If we strengthen our belief in our aqeedah and our tawheed, everything else will fall into place. As Imam Malik rahimahullah, he said, nothing that rectified the early days of this ummah will rectify the latter days of this ummah. He said, nothing that, uh, nothing will rectify the, 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 the latter days of this ummah except that which rectified the early days of this ummah. Naam. Nothing will rectify the end of the latter day part of this ummah except the same that, that rectified the early days of the ummah. What rectified them was their belief. Their firm belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Their worship of Allah alone. Their distancing away from kufr and shirk and pleasing the kuffar and being proud of their deen and not compromising their deen to fit in with, it, with the, the, the disbelievers and so forth and many other things. But this is the the, the core reason for Allah's izzah and how we gain the izzah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because all izzah is in his hand. All honor and might and power is in his hand. Walillahil izzatu jami'ah. To Allah belongs all izzah. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Next week, bi'idhnillahi ta'ala, we will move on to the next surah. Surah Quraysh, bi'idhnillahi ta'ala. We ask Allah azza wa jal to make us a beneficial lesson and to grant us and beneficial knowledge and to make us of those who understand his book and those who have a great relationship with his book and those who understand his power and to make us of those who empower ourselves through this deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and make us true role models who implement this deen and the teaching of this deen and who call others to this deen 
آمين يا رب العالمين وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك أشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت أستغفرك وأتوب إليك السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته